This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. The U.S. Army and Navy each onboard somewhere between 40 and 50,000 sailors and soldiers a year and take them from no operational experience to combat readiness in that same year. How do they do that? Well, in a word, clarity. In a world of uncertainty and chaos, they create purpose, they create mission, they create training, and then they drill and drill and drill until you understand your job and the job of the sailor or soldier to the left of you or to the right of you. Well, the world of digital infrastructure is growing exponentially faster than any recruiting campaign for the military. And some would argue we have the chaos of trying to onboard all of these people. And what we lack in many cases is clarity. My guest this week is John Trout, who happens to be an expert in clarity. John is a former Navy sailor, IT startup expert, and digital infrastructure veteran who's been working in this area for the past 15 years. His ideas are thought-provoking, compelling, and while we don't agree on everything, no Army or Navy vet ever will, they are worth considering, and I am sure you will benefit greatly from the conversation. So please, enjoy my guest, John Trout. The most valuable commodity on Earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. John, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Dave. Oh, I like it. Early in the morning, you got the bedroom voice going right out of the, <laughs> right out of the gate. Ready to go. I like Ready it. Ready to go. Um, well, you and I have had an opportunity to have a couple off-camera conversations, which I've loved, so I persuaded you, tricked you into coming onto the program. Thanks for coming on. Before we dive into our content today, it is unusual for people to end up in the data center business. Um, so why don't you explain to us how you ended up near this industry? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, funny enough, some, something I, I uh, great, great icebreaker at dinners with people, right? Yeah. <laughs> when you're out there is how'd you all end up here? And everybody thinks about it and everybody takes a different path. It seems like, right. Yeah. There's no, there's no one way. Um, you know, for me, uh, you know, my background from Southern California, um, joined the military right out of high school, uh, did six years in the Navy, um, got out in 2008 and moved to the Bay Area and was a field service technician uh, mm. for a year working on uh, electron microscopes, which <laughs> not, not many people know what those are, but uh, uh, it, was, it was interesting uh, traveling around the Bay Area and uh, about a year later, I joined a startup that was uh, building power meters and branch circuit meters for data centers. Mm. So joined there as a uh, mid-level engineer, uh, technician for for uh, trend point systems, and uh, ended up uh, uh, being there for five years. And, and we grew that business. Um, so that was that was my intro into the data center space. Was uh, was taking that job at Trendpoint and mm. day one. You know, they say, oh, well, we're working in data centers. And, of course, just kind of nod and smile. Oh, yeah, data centers. Of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> it all makes sense. Um, were you an uh, electronic technician in the Navy? I was an uh, electronic technician, uh, not not a nuke, though. So I got a, you know, yeah, especially yeah. in this industry, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I worked on uh, communication systems, electronics tech. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So from there, how, what was your journey? So that's the Bay Area. I know you live out on the East Coast now. How'd you get from there to here? Yeah. So uh, 
uh, as we were growing Trendpoint, um, we needed uh, bigger office spaces, and so we moved the business from the Bay Area down to Southern California, where mm-hmm. I was originally from, and um, uh, stayed at Trendpoint until 2015, and and left and uh, founded another company, Bitbox USA, mm-hmm. uh, that was doing infrastructure monitoring. Um, in 20. Uh, 18, I said, you know, uh, the West Coast, I'd like to try living out on the East Coast. And I was going out there a lot for a customer of mine uh, uh, working with Google Fiber. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was going to Raleigh a lot and just fell in love with, fell in love with Raleigh. And, yeah. I mean, the growth there has been, been pretty cool to be part of. Yeah, it's such a cool part of the country, too. Um, a lot of people, they, they don't like us telling the story because, uh, you know, they, they don't want their community to get too big. But Research Triangle Park up there is just... It's an amazing community, beautiful weather, beautiful place, very affordable, especially if you're coming from the West Coast. Uh, it's pretty cool. Um, when you got out there, so are you still with uh, that organization or are you with a new one? No, in, uh, uh, I stayed there as a CEO of Bitbox uh, until 2020. Mm-hmm. And uh, in March of 2020, founded uh, Checkup. Well, that's where I'm at currently. Right. So when we... Got introduced, at least when I remember, so feel free to uh, correct my memory. I am I don't want to have a senior moment. But the, the first conversation I really remember was in Austin last year. We were at an event, DCAC. That's right. Um, put on our, by our good friend, uh, Kurt Offel. And it was, uh, the, there was a lot of conversation around veterans. It wasn't just data centers, but it was around veterans. And maybe we'll get to that as part of this this conversation. But one of the things that you and I talked about was uh, this idea of um, I'll use you didn't use this word I'll use this word uh, chaos disorganization. This is what I remember. Um, you know, for those that aren't in our industry, um, our industry is growing up so fast and so quickly. We have a million different ways to solve the. We're, we're trying to operate a fully operational Death Star, right? We're trying to navigate that through the galaxy. And we're building the Death Star while we navigate it. So we need the tools to operate it. We need the tools to get the fighters in. We need the tools to blow up the planets. We need the like, we need all the tools. And it is um, um, many times these are disparate systems that are disconnected. And so we're managing the chaos on the back end. But I remember in talking to you, uh, part of our conversation was um, the passion about, man, we need to organize these things. This is a wildly inefficient world. So when you imagine that, what is it that inspired you? What is CheckHub and what inspired you to get involved with that from your previous endeavors? Yeah, I think, you know, I was in, uh, I, I think when it really, really hit home for me, um, I was in Africa, uh, in, in Ghana, working with a cell tower company there and watching them um, work through the potential of deploying out, you know, some more advanced infrastructure there, right? Right. They're not gonna, they're not gonna run fiber underground all through Africa for connectivity, right? right? It's gonna be cell towers, five G, um, and it creates a problem there on the kind of the knowledge gap, and you know, seeing how they were bringing in, you know, uh, field technicians and installers and stuff from uh, from other countries that had that expertise, and you know, no, going through the struggles that I went through and in, in you know, being a field service technician and then managing field service teams and having that product, you know, having a hardware product and then a software kind of IoT product. 
out there and saying, wow, this is all the same problem. It's really distilling itself down the same way. Right. Uh, it, 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 I said, there's got to be a better way to do this. Um, there's got to be a better way to provide, you know, really it boils down to clarity, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, you, mess, you, you, you mentioned the, the chaos. Um, that chaos really is, it, it starts with ambiguity, right? right? It starts with not everybody understanding exactly what needs to happen. And uh, so, so, you know, what drove us for Checkup was how do we create a platform that really provides clarity to organizations, you know, from right. a uh, technical service delivery standpoint, right? Service delivery. Uh, and th- that expands outside of the data center space. Uh, it's a pretty broad, uh, broad use case, but we, we see that challenge everywhere. Uh, and, yeah. and we see people looking for tools um, and looking for ways, ways to do it. When I try to explain this idea to people not in our industry, the image I want to give them is that when I see an aircraft carrier, how the Navy has, one of my few nods to the Navy, <laughs> um, when the, the Navy has almost perfected the art of building that thing, they've perfected the art of designing it, building it, launching it, putting it through the sea trials, operating it, decommissioning it, and it is truly a moving city in every way from entertainment to feeding to combat operations to patrolling to emergency medical care. They cannot have, um, as complex a system as that is, they cannot have a lack of clarity. And even then, they're mm-hmm. still refining clarity. We, when we, in my world, in the data center world, talk about operational maturity, what I have in mind is the operational maturity as defined by the Navy. Not just because they have nukes, but um, and they can't get that wrong, but just the system from from start to finish, you're out in the middle, you know, co- coming around the tip of South Africa or out off of Chile or somewhere in the world, um, you can't pause to refresh in groceries or to rearm or whatever. So you see this elegant, continuous refinement, but amazing system of systems in operation. That's beautiful clarity to me. And in the digital infrastructure world that we live in, whether it's data centers or telecom or satellites or whatever, we've grown so fast with, with not the same rigor in every case around it, because we're, we're different agencies that um, create the standards. We have all of these different tools that are applied. It's not just the military that applies something. And so we're as we're launching and growing these things, it seems to me like what you're trying to do is how do I, in this, in as an example, in the same way that the Navy does this with a carrier, I want to help bring operational clarity to um, to this world. Otherwise, well, let's just start there. Is it is that a is that an accurate um, analogy? Oh, it is. It is. Um, you know, we we've been doing surveys and and you know. It, at that DCAC event <laughs> um, that where we first met, you know, we surveyed everybody and and asked them, you know, what do they think the biggest problem is in our industry? And uh, the, the results were were not surprising, but very interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So we said, what's the number one biggest challenge in the industry? And i um, curious if you could guess what everybody said. Well, I have insider knowledge, so I'm going to say coffee, but I don't want to uh, dwell on that. You know, it feels to me like the layup is 
experienced people because I'm just thinking of our world and where we're constantly. But if it's not that, it is tools that don't talk to each other would be my two guesses. And we didn't set this up. No, we do. I absolutely didn't. Yeah, no, it, it was a, I would say it was a, I think it was a, a 60, 40, 60%, kind of 40%, um, you know, 40% saying sustainability. And look, we've got a lot of, I think a lot of good minds and efforts on that. Mm. Um, the 60% was staffing. Um, yeah. And that's the, that's, that's where we're, we're seeing it. And, you know, even, um, and I'll, I'll give a nod to uh, uh, James Rapass uh, with, uh, with QTS yeah. when we yeah. were, at a, um, a DC Connects event a few weeks ago, he was explaining and he kind of, he visualized this great curve of, you know, here is my here is my labor demand is a pretty pretty straight vertical line in my demand right okay. as we grow and scale, but my staffing goes up and then kind of flattens out at some point right right and it creates this uh, this gap here where where there's got to be some sort of operational leverage right. Um, so everybody's aware of this, this staffing, um, the staffing question and, you know, to, to bring that back to the Navy, you know, the Navy is a, it's, it's an operational machine, right? Uh, but I think one of the most important pieces that people don't realize is they onboard 40,000 people a year That's with incredible. no prior knowledge, education, training, right? Just bringing, I mean, their hiring pool, if you think about it, is virtually anybody, right? Yeah. And so they can operate that machine with 40,000 people a year, new people coming in. Um, that's a, that, to me, is the most astounding part, right? It, it's not just that it's astounding, because the Army probably brings on a similar number of people, having been in the Army. But for me, they were like, bring you on, see that door of that airplane, jump out of it, or take this gun and go shoot things down there. Whereas the Navy, they got to operate nukes. They got to operate, you know, massive machines and infrastructure. I, I don't. I'm not here to pick on on my brethren over there in the army, but it, they're onboarding. It's not just that they're hiring all these new people. They're putting them through this rigorous training program to operate some of the most complex mm -hmm. systems on earth in harmony with the systems that are and the people that are already there. Like how they how they how people retire, how they come into the system, how they. Uh, move through that whole world during the course of their career, whether it's just for a few years or uh, decades, right. it's incredible. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, and, and to take a step back real quick, you know, we, we, and I know you, you and I, it's easy, right? Being, being yeah. in data centers, you've been in data centers longer yeah. than I have, but it's kind of our whole world, right? right. And it's been our whole world. Um, but, you know, something, something we're realizing, you know, something that's very apparent is this problem this problem exists in outside of the data center space, mm -hmm. right? There's there's a there's kind of a bigger vertical or a bigger challenge we're trying, you know, that that we that we need to solve. I think infrastructure, you think data centers, right? But what about the network closet at Walmart, right? right? And what about the security cameras? What about traffic signals? What about solar fields or renewable energy? Right. All of these things kind of wrap together and you know, what I like to call technical service delivery. Mm. Um, and they, and it's really, it's that same type of job role, just in a different building, right? right. Um, you know, somebody that's going to go and uh, somebody that's, that's going to go be a fiber technician out in the field would probably be the same type of person you'd want, you know, in data center operations sure. tech, right? right? It's that same mindset, that same... Um, uh, same way of thinking, that same troubleshooting ability, consistency. 
And so this staffing issue, data centers are experiencing it, but data centers are fighting for talent against IT smart hands companies and field service firms and telecom companies and cell tower companies, right? It's not, right. everybody's fighting over a very small labor pool. And, you know, so in that technical service delivery area, could you imagine if we could, if we found a way to onboard 40,000 people a year, right? Mm -hmm. And you brought up the army, they do mm -hmm. about 50,000 a year, right? Right. So when you look at those numbers, it's, it, we could solve this problem. And so what are the principles they use? Right. Um, and that's, that's some of our messages. How do we do this? How do we, how do we help companies, you know, widen that hiring pool? How can we solve this problem? And I think it's a combination of things to get there, but. Uh, I want to pause. We're going to come back to that. Mm -hmm. How do we, you started off with clarity. Mm -hmm. How do we bring clarity to a digital infrastructure world where there are components of it that have a lot of clarity? We don't have a, I think there's, well, let me just leave it at that. How do you imagine we're going to bring clarity or what's the right way to bring clarity to the infrastructure? That's a, you know, I, I think... I think having a, a one one place to go for things, right? A single place to go. You know, when I think of clarity, um, when I think of operational clarity, uh, the things that the first thing that comes to mind. I think it's it's surprising for a lot of people, but the, the first thing that comes to mind, you know, talking to data center professionals. Oh, you know, operational clarity. Let me give you an example. Is um, I I got from the airport to here mm -hmm. in an Uber, right? Right. Well, that Uber app is a great example of operational clarity. They did a really good job, right? I think they they perfected operational clarity and they leveraged it for the taxi cab industry, right? For that vertical. But if you think about what Uber does is they align everything from the service provider to the end user, which is the rider. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's complete clarity from beginning to end to here's where I need to go. Here's when I need to be there. The service provider on the other side says, "I can come. I can come fulfill that request." Mm -hmm. And then you can both you and the driver, the service provider, can sit there and follow along on your phones and see everything. You have agreed to the financial aspect of it, mm -hmm. and everybody kind of has knows at every every second in that transaction, you know exactly <clears throat> what's going on. Right? right? That scope is defined. Who's right. doing it's defined. All of those things. And I think that is, you know, so for us to for us to bring that clarity to, you know, technical service delivery, um, I, I think we need to find a way to deliver that same, um, that, that same example that Uber has given us, right? Mm -hmm. And they disrupted a whole, whole industry, right? right. Um, that same model, uh, but it's a little more challenging, right? Because it's, it's this job's, a, you know, more mission critical, right? More technical than just operating a vehicle, but right. I think the principles still hold through right well for sure i mean whether it's navy or air force or army you know pretty mission critical systems and so mm -hmm. they do sort of a version of uber and you know you've get you see it in the marketplace you see it in these other places <clears throat> um when i i love that idea here's where the operator in me gets nervous um one of the reasons why I'm one of the only IT people from back in the day that really didn't have a big problem with Apple laptops coming into my Windows world. And the reason for that was Apple laptops back then almost never, or desktops for that matter, almost never got infected. Why? 98% of my uh, computer hardware pool were Windows, 
and the operators were inelegant and the tools to protect people were inelegant. So if somebody released a virus from even three years ago, some malware, um, if I didn't have a lot of vigor around protecting that environment, it was a very vulnerable environment. We talk about networking, Cisco, I don't know what they their market share is today. Good, great, we use Cisco. 80%, 90% of the internet at one time was on Cisco. If you infect that Cisco OS, you've essentially infected the internet. And so it's this balance of, I want clarity, I want um, interoperability, I want these other things. Um, but the military has some inoculation in there or some, some way that some, a number of tools that they have developed over the last several hundred years, certainly in the US's case anyway, to kind of mitigate some of that risk. I don't know how Uber would do it. You know, when COVID um, hit, their operational model got disrupted. But in terms of onboarding, setting up a standard by which everybody can operate by, and then delivering on it, and then refining it. So once you have that standard, you can refine it. That's pretty amazing. How would you imagine, without incurring more risk than we want to tolerate, how do you imagine bringing clarity like that, either through your current organization or just your imagination? How would you imagine we could get there? Yeah, you know, um, bringing every organization is a little bit different, right? right. You know, we talk about, uh, um, you know, with, with data centers, right? Um, look at an electrical system in a data center, right? A, a power system. You can go in there and look at one piece of software or one tool and mm -hmm. see your entire power system, its status, its current, you know, right. levels, how it's performing, how it's operating. Um, you walk into a data center or IT smart hands, field service companies, and you say, show me, you know, how you dispatch a technician out or how you onboard a new technician. Uh, and it's three, four different things. Well, it's this email <laughs> and least. then the spreadsheet, right? <laughs> it's a SharePoint folder. And then maybe we have an app for this. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, it creates a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of confusion, a lot of ambiguity, right? And, you know, when we keep going back to this clarity concept is, you know, the only thing that can supplement clarity is experience. Mm. So if you have an, an environment that has a lot of ambiguity, you need highly experienced people to bridge that gap, right? right? Um, where on the other side, if you have an environment with a lot of clarity, you don't have to rely on experience as much to fulfill those roles to, you know, um, to, to deliver on that job, to deliver on that service offering. Um, so how, how we get there is going to be, you know, look, I think, I think it's a combination of, of training, I think it's day-to-day -day operations, and just ensuring that all the stakeholders are looking at the same thing, mm -hmm. from the technician, internal management, end users, everybody sees the same exact thing, right? Mm. Um, and and the more we can, more we the more we all strive to to provide that alignment, um, the 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 clarity will will be increased, right? There's the same tool a technician is using to to you know fix something at a cell tower should be the same tool that the executives are using to get get their information or the same tool the end users are right, right. and you don't have that oh this lives here and this lives in this tool and this right. lives in this folder and this is on this email right right um, I think that's a that's a first step for a lot of for a lot of organizations to get there you know that's a that's a great idea I hadn't thought about that before if I'm that uber app I am certain on the back end is telling the organization, how long of a contact time from when somebody asked for a ride to they got it? How do they rate it? Did they rate it? Did they tip? 
What was their experience? Did it complete satisfactorily? Um, where are they requesting rides from? At what time of day? Like in, in all of this information that they can use evidently to hear the news, chat GPT or whatever. But, you know, they, they use these tools and they, they get this data. But it's the same, I don't know Uber, but it feels like it's sort of the same data lake is informing. And your dashboard's just different depending upon am I a consumer of it? Am I, am I an operator within it? Am I an executive? Am I, you know, who am I? And I, um, I could see how that could be pretty powerful. Yeah, and I, you know, I keep using the the you know the Uber example, and you know, I, I think uh, you know when you and I were at dinner a few weeks ago, he said, "Well, you know, driving a car is you know less critical than operating a data center." Right. Absolutely. Right. Um, it, it's interesting though the the principles the principles of it I think hold true. Right. If we could make them a little more robust, right, yeah. for the environment. But you know, look at the Uber. You have three you have three stakeholders involved in that transaction you have uh the end user which is you the writer mm-hmm. you have uber as the organization in the middle mm-hmm. and then you have the service provider which is the driver mm-hmm. so it's the same thing at you know um for qts right mm-hmm. you have your end user your tenant mm-hmm. right which is the writer mm-hmm. you have um uh qts the organization which mm-hmm. is uber in that mm-hmm. model mm-hmm. and then you have your uh your technician your data center ops uh, personnel, your smart hands personnel, which is the driver, right? Mm-hmm. So it's those same three um, pieces. Are they all three able to, you know, is everybody looking at the same thing like you are when you ride in ride in an Uber, right? Yeah. No. That's an <laughs> easy answer, no. Um, but what I'm curious, what you've been really intrigued in me is almost every family member I know that's in college or some similar situation either has or is driving for Uber or Amazon or like, you know, um, uh, Instacart or one of these services, right? Let's just say Uber, but it's sort of this umbrella of this. Gig gig economy, right? Gig economy. I sign up and in my spare time, away from my other things in all of these particular cases, although I do know people that do this as their full-time thing. This isn't a supplemental. This is what they do. What's interesting to me is it's a low barrier to entry. It's a low barrier to productivity. They're, in their mind, making a few bucks pretty quick or maybe even more than a few bucks. And so that's really intriguing to me. The, you know, when I, I also joined the military uh, right out of high school. In fact, I was so impatient with my parents and the idea of authority that I was a genius and got a GED and joined the Airborne Infantry to escape authority. About an hour in, I discovered wall-to-wall counseling with Drill Sergeant McNair. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. Um, but And the reason for that was because the recruiters had come by and gave me a lot of clarity. Look, if you don't know what you want to do, you don't have to decide now. Come and join one of these branches of service in a job that may intrigue you. We'll evaluate your skill. I evidently evaluated so low. They said, well, you're good for jumping out of airplanes and helicopters. That's about all we got for you. Sign me up. So that's what I did. But um, but then I could just go in. I got onboarded. They onboarded me pretty quickly and a whole group of us. And within days, we were, um, we all looked the same. We were head shaved, uniforms on, and we were working on, they would teach us a basic concept, then we drill on it. Then mm-hmm. a basic concept, and we drill on it. And when we came out of, you know, I don't know what it was, 
18 weeks later, maybe after basic AIT jump school and, and the times in between those slots and then finally into my duty station. And then I got put to work again. It was pretty remarkable uh, to, to onboard somebody like that. These commercial enterprises we're talking about are much quicker than that. Uh, they're also much simpler. We're not arming anybody, hopefully, in those things. But it's this idea of, one, I'm attracted to it because it seems like it's an easy, low barrier to entry. And two, I am productive to a certain degree for the mission pretty dang quickly. So how do we – I had Dean Nelson on here a few weeks ago, and one of the things that he talked about was um, – the need for skilled labor and technical labor in digital infrastructure, not just data centers, digital infrastructure as a whole, because it is the backbone of modern economy. And I would completely agree with them. So when you think about that, how do you imagine not just the tools on the back end, but how do we, one, call attention to this industry and make it attractive in the way that some of these other places we've talked about are? And two, how do we make it a low barrier of entry for them to get involved? Wow, so many, so many thoughts, and you know, you're—I uh, feel like you're baiting me again to just kind of go. I on, probably on am, a, on but a, I on a, on a rant. <laughs> I want you to go on a rant and be passionate. No, absolutely no. Um, so, you know, the stepping back a little bit, you know, I use Uber as an example, and 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 by no means, you know, I we are in a mission critical environment, right? Mm-hmm. And and look, we we work with a lot of a lot of people in the industry, and I've talked to a lot of people in the industry that do things like managers' workstations and retail locations. Well, those go down. There's a loss of money there, right? right. There's a loss of revenue. There's right. all sorts of this infrastructure outside of data centers um, that are that's very, very critical to those lines of business. And look, I, I think we can say, you know, what we're doing isn't as life and death critical as the military, mm-hmm. but it's a little more than Uber, right? So right. let's let's find that right. median. So right. there's principles on both ends of that spectrum that we can adopt, right? right? Um and, and something just to throw out there is, you know, when I said earlier, the Navy, you know, over 30,000 people a year, uh, the Army, over 50,000 people, brand new people in the organization. Uber does over half a million a year on board. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that, isn't that insane? Globally. Correct. Like, that, that's crazy. The, the total U.S. military, I, I believe, is, is just over a million people, active reservists, just over a million, right? right. Um, Uber runs a network of four to five million globally. Right. So if you look at how they onboard, they built that machine, right, with yeah. that clarity and and how they do this. And you, you look at the military and, you know, I think back the moments I stepped off the bus at boot camp, um, not knowing what was what was coming next. Right. Um, but they 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 do. The military has a great job of establishing immediately cultural alignment. Right. That's why everybody right. everybody shaves their head. Right. right. Everybody's w- wearing the same thing. You're establishing cultural alignment. Number one. And then you mentioned the training and then the drilling and the training. Um, you know, I think that's a that's a piece that, you know, our our industry technical service delivery in general needs to focus on more is that training piece. Um, and and when you look at, you know, okay, we need we need we have a skilled, a shortage of skilled labor. We need more people. We need to fill the top of the funnel of that hiring pool if we're gonna scale, right? Mm-hmm. We need to develop that that coming in and you say, okay, we need, uh, we need some training there. We need training. Um, and then, uh, uh, an onboarding process and then a way to actually deliver and execute on the work. Right. Um, but on that, on that training piece, if, if you look at, you know, traditional education routes, um, 
they're just not keeping pace with with the modern economy. Mm. They're 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 moving too slowly. Mm. Uh, and and we look at how people are. You know, you got a GED. I finished high school with a two GPA. Right. I mean, very similar, <clears throat> very similar stories. Both from Southern California. Nailing it. <laughs> That's right. But. but both similar stories, but I think that what that goes to show is, look, the modern, the, the current education system isn't keeping pace with the needs of the workforce. And it was developed and a lot of these, a lot of those paths were developed, you know, before we had the sum total human knowledge in our pocket, right? right? I mean, you look at this, it's literally everything humans have ever recorded is available in your pocket right, right. now. And our education system really hasn't adapted to that from right. a model standpoint, right? Um, so, I, so I think there's a, you know, having organizations focusing on that training thing, people getting involved and saying, look, we, I think we as the private sector can solve that problem faster. Um, it's one of the reasons we've recently partnered with uh, Nomad Futurist and providing that free training academy to give those technical skill sets, right, to help bring in people into that, into the, into the industry and widen that hiring pool for everybody. So the training, I, I, I think up front, and when you, when we do that, if you have an organization that has a lot of clarity, you have that training, you have, you're ready to go, we can create opportunity for people to change their lives and build a new career or currently they don't know how to get there. They don't know how to get started, right? right. I mean, how many job wrecks? I was, uh, I was talking with a, uh, a rental company. Um, I'll keep the name out. I don't sure. know. <laughs> a, rental, a rental company. Um, <clears throat> and they said they have over a thousand open recs in North America that they can't fill. Wow. Right. I talk to people all the time in the industry that they're looking, they have, you know, five, six job positions that have been open for a year for facility managers. These are good jobs. Right. And then on the other hand, you have, you know, I think a whole sector of our, of our society that is really struggling to find their place. Mm -hmm. Right. And say, where do we go? So how do we bridge that gap? And I think, you know, training, I think if we all, if we all contribute to, to some of that education, but, you know, private sector can say, hey, let's put an investment into these principles that, you know, you saw in the military of that right. cultural alignment, that training, let me teach you and then let's drill, right? right? Teach and then practice, right? And then have that clarity on the day-to-day -day job execution. I think we can, we can widen the hiring pool quite a bit. Um, and, and it does, it's not going to take much, right? It's, if we could, Widen the hiring pool by ten percent, fifteen percent. That's game changing. Yeah, for a lot of organizations. So it feels like we have an opportunity to me for us to evangelize. And when I talk to, for example, my own children, until I can convince them why it's important, why they should be a believer, why not the what, not the or even the how. How do you get involved? What is it? But why? Why should you care? Why could this be a fit for you? Um, it feels like we have work to do there to share with the work around us or the people around us. Um, when you're talking about all these open wrecks, people aren't inspired to get involved. How do I inspire them to get involved? Not just tell them how I'm removing barriers to, van to entry, but why should they consider entry in the first place? Have you given that any thought on how we share the good news now, I have already coined the idea of getting white patent leather shoes with Bill Gates' picture on each toe and going out there and preaching the digital infrastructure gospel. Hasn't got me very far. I grew the hair, but, uh, but that's so, about it. Yeah, you know, it's, um, you know it's, it's a cultural thing, right? I think for, for, a, very, for a very long time, unfortunately, we, 
um, you know, we we valued uh, we valued advanced degree and you know traditional college and bachelor's degree and master's degree. I mean, how how many how many people do you know finish up their bachelor's like? Well, I don't know what I want to do. I think I'm just going to go get a master's. Right. Okay, you're still not going to know what right. you want to do. Right? You're still going to be entry level. <laughs> Just more debt. Right now, you have more debt, <laughs> and and so we've really devalued that, uh, and that's a cultural problem um, that I think is I think is I see the tides <clears throat> changing. Right, I think we've um, I, I don't know if this if this term's been coined yet, but I think we've experienced peak college. <laughs> I really do. Right, I, I think the the alternatives are there. I'm not a I'm not a college person. Right. right. Um, and I think we've experienced that as a as a society, uh, because there's you know how many people have bachelor's degrees that can't right. do good jobs, right? right? And they're now they've got this debt, and right. you know I think they were sold sold something that that was outdated, right? right. They were sold a a dream and sold a product that was thirty years too late for them to buy, you right? Know? Um, they were all sold Apple IIe's saying it was the best thing on the market. Right. You know? um, and at one time it was the right way to go and it just hasn't, it just hasn't adapted and evolved. So how do, how do we go out there and talk about the trades? And, and really when we talk about digital infrastructure and in a lot of these roles, it really does kind of come down to a trade, right? right. It's, it's, it's trade, it's trade type work, right? Mm. It's not uh, it, it, you know, accounting finance, right? It's who's going to go out there and understand you know, if the server's having an issue, what are all the pieces from the utility feed in the building all the way down to the server to make this happen? Sure. Right? Uh, and having having that understanding. And so so I think one thing we can do is is really remove that stigma of college as a requirement. Um, you know, and I think there's, you know, when I was when I was finishing high school, um, barely uh, squeezing through. Uh, there, there was. I, I, I remember that feeling of look. I was one of the only ones of people I knew that wasn't going to college. Mm-hmm. So I didn't do well in high school. So I tried it for a semester, thinking magically I would do better. <laughs> magically right. it would click, right. and it didn't. Right? It was uh, just as just as bad, and it's not something I was interested in. And uh, but I remember that feeling of hey, I'm the only one, right? right. Not doing this path, not right. doing that route. Uh, I, I have a very uh, very good friend. From a from a traditional you know uh, Middle Eastern family, an engineer father, doctor mother, siblings doctors, and he gets into data centers and it was you know <laughs> done very right. well for himself. Right, <laughs> you know, you're but shaming the, the family. Ex- what are you doing? Exactly right. right? I- exactly. So how do we remove how do we remove that stigma? And I think it's really an emphasis on the trades and uh, and, and how we can, how we can get people involved in saying, look, there are a lot of paths to be successful. College isn't right. College isn't, it's not a bad one, but it's not for everybody. Right. right. And these other ones are just as good. Yeah. I don't want it to be college default. You know, ironically, right. um, when I, are you 40 yet? Have you hit your forties? I did last, uh, last August. Yeah. Well, I remember 42, I decided my story can't be, um, GED. Uh, so I went to school. Lo and behold, I'm just smoking it. Just um, almost 100% A's. I never thought I could get through calculus because I failed geometry in high school. <laughs> so I. And I smoked uh, all of my algebra classes, algebra one, two, college algebra, uh, statistics, uh, economics. Uh, my brain was in a different place. My attention level, I learned, they hadn't, the world hadn't, I knew I had ADD, but the world didn't know it, what ADD was called back in the late 70s, early 80s when I was in high school. 
And so I learned as an adult how to cope and manage those things and how to become a good student. It was amazing. It wasn't an intellect thing. It was a focus and um, interest thing. Now I was certainly, I remember when I went to go to school, they give you an entrance exam. I was like, you can divide fractions? Who knew? You know, and off I went. I was intimidated. Took me 10 years to get my degree. Hilariously, it had, from a career perspective, zero value. That's right. But from a, uh, for me personally, as a personal milestone, it was fantastically rewarding. I say that to say um, college default, I think, is a wrong thing because it puts the emphasis in the wrong areas. It drives up costs. It artificially changes the marketplace. I, I'm not. I'm not a fan of that. I am. I don't want people to hear. I'm not a fan of college because I don't want my surgeon or my physician or my uh, whoever that requires all of that school um, to to become world class at what they do. That's the mechanism for certain industries and certain uh, disciplines. Hundred percent. I just. I just want to an opportunity for us to get back to in the 60s, you could be a Chicago bus driver and put your kids through trade or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there is a there is a way that um, not not all jobs have equal worth. And that's not what I, I'm not trying to get to an equality of outcome, just an equality of opportunity. But even with my kids, I have one that did school for about a year and a half and she just struggled really. And now she's out and she's doing okay. I have one that is completing school and doing great. And in her case, because she's studying Korean and some other things, and she's going to take that overseas, it is important for her to do those things. And then I have my youngest who's like, eh, I'm not sure yet. I may get some of the writing and some of the other things out of the way while I'm also working. Cool. I don't want you to come out with debt. And if you're not sure you need to go down one of these areas that require that kind of education, don't, don't do it. Don't waste your time and don't do it. I just think we need to, it's less about minimizing college for me, and it's more about celebrating the trades, the apprenticeships, the other things uh, around us. And I have a very practical reason for that. Uh, Here, I don't know, it's been probably six weeks ago, John, where we had a big Arctic front come through the Southeast. In Atlanta, probably, I don't have empirical data on it, but just by anecdotal experience, Three in 10, four in 10 houses had a pipe break or something like that. There were no plumbers to go around at Absolutely. any price. None. The Northeast was hit much harder. And this was a topic of many conversations. And one of the things that came up out of that was for every five people leading a trade at, through retirement, three are entering. That's right. It, it's not, oh, I'll get in line. There is nobody coming to help. You've got to call them from the next county over. And I know a number of people whose kids or cousins or nephews or somebody have gone into welding or into one of these other trades. And it's not necessarily a golden ticket, but they have a much better starting income. They have a much better career path with a much lower barrier to entry and little to no debt. 
to accomplish these things that they uh, that they've set off to go accomplish in in in, in recession proof industries as well. Yeah, right. Those pipes are going to break whether the economy's good or bad, and there's insurance calls. That stuff's got to happen. Right. right. Your roof has to be replaced. Things have to. Carpentry exactly. needs to happen. Exactly. And so I don't want to be anti this. I don't think we're anti. No, we're not at just all. pro this and bring it back. Because the consequence uh, is uh, pretty significant if we don't have skilled labor. I was having I was having a conversation with somebody and explaining them my my theory on college, kind of very similar to what you're saying. I don't want to be anti right college because I'm because I'm not. But you know, I said, look, hey, you know, I'll ask you the question. Right, we can agree that college isn't the right path for everyone. Right. Right. Okay. So, what percentage? Roughly, would you say college is good for and bad for? Just guess. I would guess it's somewhere between 20 and 28%. 28.5% uh, is where I was going to go. But yeah. No, are you serious? No, I'm kidding. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. 0.323. No, uh, <laughs> um, you'd say somewhere somewhere between 20 and 30%. Yeah. Right? Okay. Let's assume it's 20%. Let's okay. assume it's on the lower end of that. 20% okay. of people should be introduced to the trades. What are we doing for the 16, 17, and 18-year-olds right now for that 20% of the population, are we, what are, what are we telling them, right? Well, every, every day in school, and even my kids, which are younger than yours, right? 11, yeah. 10, 10 years old are already being told about the importance of college and about right. if you want to get a good job, you got to go to a good college. And, right. and it's like, hold on a second. Right. If you want to get a good job, there's more paths than right. just college, right? right? And so, you know, to kind of bring it back to our industry, I think that's a first step. And again, I, I go back to that. I think we've experienced peak college. I think people are getting disenfranchised with that model, and it's got to change. I right. mean, it's got to change. Everything else in our life has changed in the last hundred years, except how we educate people. Yeah, right? we still educate them the same way. Yeah. How so is that? So how how's it going to change? How would you like if you were given you're the education czar, and you get an opportunity, politically um, neutral? It's not you're not choosing a team. You just want to get a message out. For people to consider, what would that be? Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. You know, I really I really like the model of you know I think I think people should have the opportunity to opt out of their junior and senior year of high school mm -hmm. and go into trade school mm -hmm. in their junior senior year. I think they should have the opportunity to do two days a week in the classroom and three days a week as an intern at QTS, right, right? or as an intern at uh, American Tower or Crown Castle or you know AT and T Fiber. Um, why, you know, let's set that model up now, right? right? Um, why not? That's education. I think, um, when I was a kid in high school, we got to, um, we, we had to take, I forget what they were called, but you had seven different courses, woodworking, mm -hmm. auto shop, metalworking, sewing. Um, I missed in others, but I remember there were, I almost certain there were seven. My favorite was cooking for obvious reasons. Almost <laughs> every day I had eggs or something. Um, I enjoyed them all, but it was my wife the other day, I was repairing my daughter's car and I couldn't get to, uh, um, had to reach up through it, one of these little Hondas to turn the, get the turn signal bulb out. So weird, I had to, had to do it. And my wife of 36 years came out and I said, baby, can you, I either have to take this whole bumper off or could you just reach your arm down there? Which she did without complaint. And she said, you know, when I was in high school, she also, she's about the same age as me, she got to go through uh, her favorite sh class in all of high school, 
was auto shop. She said, I just love, I was never exposed to it as a kid. I'm one of six girls, eight kids to my Japanese mom and my Irish dad. And this was not in our world. And I loved it. And I regret, if not an auto mechanic going into welding or metalworking, she's an artist now and works with pottery and other stuff. But just, it, it wasn't so much as a stigmatism as it was, she was told to go to college, which she did. She majored in art instead of one of these trades. And looking back on it now, she said, you know, I know myself better at, I can't say her age or she'll get mad at me, but um, I know myself better now. And if I could go back to that kid, I would say, choose this path and see where this takes you because you love to work with your hands and you love to work with these things. She's got multiple degrees and it just did not. And I'm again, we're not, neither one of us are anti-school. We're putting our kids through school. It is just... Where do you want to go and what's the mechanism that helps you best? Because I know you, kid. I know who you are, or at least some of you. And how do I help guide you into the thing that's going to fulfill your life? Yeah, so you've got three kids, right? Three daughters, yeah. Three daughters, grew up in the same house, same environment. It's a good control group. So even even in that, you know, growing up, growing up together in the same environment with all the same inputs and all the same influence... One of them college wasn't set for. Yeah. The other two? One for sure. One is on the fence. Right. So you're at about 50%. Yeah. And and so if you're 50% in your own household, with all the same consistent inputs and, and, and everything around there's controlled, I was just thinking about this. How are we going to say it's good for 100% of the broader society, right? Yeah. When you have that that antidote right there, right? Right. right. And, and it's, it's interesting. So... You know, to, to bring it back, and, and you you mentioned something earlier about, you know, a lot of people that in their spare time drive for Uber or these right. gig economy <clears throat> services, right? Um, so so looking back and looking now and saying, okay, we want to get more people in the, into the industry. And then you you we already have this proven model that people are interested in other industries and doing things, right? But it's easy. Right, it's yeah. easy. The clarity's there. They can pick that. They can pick that device up. They can go right. right? And you know, we see that a lot with, uh, you know, as I'm talking with, you know, kind of IT smart hands companies. It's we've got a store location in in Idaho or in South Dakota or in Montana. We got to get somebody out there to fix something. Right. Right. Well, that's a they they just start making phone calls and it's very similar to that gig economy type service. Right. right. And I think we can get there as a society to getting people in with, you know, very very little. Uh, upfront kind of onboarding and training. Um, but right now, everybody needs what, four to five years experience, right? Well, how right. do you get the four to five years of experience? So we're limiting ourselves. We're, we're, we're I think as an in- industry, we're, we're saying, okay, we need somebody with all this experience because they're focused on, they're not focused on providing clarity. Uh, so because they're not focused on providing that clarity and making that investment and in us as an, as an industry making that investment, now they're stuck with, I need four to five years of experience, right? right? Or what if we all said, hey, let's invest and contribute content content to the Nomad Futurist Academy, right? Everybody create some content, submit it there. Let's create that free, 100% free. Right. It's free for anybody. Join on there, get training, get certified. It's all free, right? Right. Let's contribute that content. Let's invest the next couple of years into providing operational clarity, you know, to people working in solar farms, to, you know, you know, uh, um, fiber technicians coming into people's homes, security camera technicians, you know, network techs, um, not just in the data center industry, right. but this whole technical service, uh, this whole technical service arena 
we could all focus on providing that clarity, providing that that content, we could have this problem solved really, really quickly. Right. right. Well, it feels like then we need to proselytize two groups. The those of us that are in the um, the operator side of things that have this fragmentation and what we've talked about this whole time, which are the people that uh, you know we want to appeal to. So if we're how do we We've talked a lot about how we go and capture the imagination of people that are coming into or thinking about making a change. How do we capture the imagination of the leaders within the these organizations? Because we're leery. Look, I'm one of those people, and I'm leery. When somebody comes up, I feel like, oh, here comes another salesperson, or here's someone trying to get my pocket. But like I'm like I'm I'm cautious. So how do you how do you capture their imagination so that we can deal with the fragmentation? I, you know, I think we just need to wait. It, the, you know, it's the the worst thing is trying to convince somebody of, of something they're not ready to hear, right? And, <laughs> and you know, you're, you're a leader at QTS. Well, you guys are continuing to scale. You guys have aggressive aggressive growth plans, as does the industry. Mm-hmm. Well, with the hiring model, people <laughs> are going to want to make more money than your business model supports, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, you're going to have trouble staffing and, you know, different language barriers and all these other things that, that come up, right? right. You're going to have, you know, these, the organizations are going to experience the pain of what's happening. You know, you talk about field service was, a, you know, sending somebody out to do, to sending somebody back out to a customer site, you know, something about field service companies. Again, I had, right. I had this challenge, right, is I only got paid to send somebody out there one time. Right. If they needed to go out a second time, that was out of my pocket. Right. Right. Well, that second visit cost 12% more year, this year than it did last year, right? Mm-hmm. Out of my pocket, right? So what's it going to be next year, right? What are we going to do? You said for every five people retiring, only three are coming in. Right. How many years can that go on before you just don't have that, you don't right. have that capability? Now everybody's competing on salary and price point, And now you've got to go back and you guys have you know, long-term leases and contracts. And now all of a sudden your business model starts to erode, right? right. Um, and, and so I think the the more, so I think how do we convince the leaders on this? Um, you know, look, look, I think we as an industry can have that message, but I, I think we just need to go out and solve. I want, I want the leaders of these organizations to be part of the, part of the solution, right? Right. You know, contribute, contribute stuff for training. Let's create these internships. Let's create these uh, the, let's create this academy and, and get people into the industry. Um, right. But yeah, you know, it's it, it's very interesting on the on the business side. The belts are going to get tightened here pretty soon, <laughs> and yeah. already have, right? Yeah, I mean, you've seen that change. How do we, as a group, if we have these common goals, work together to uh, proselytize both the larger group of people and on the back end um, the operators of these different infrastructure? to join in for our collective good. Yeah, it, you know, the, uh, uh, you mentioned, you said, you know, obviously focused on data centers, right? <laughs> you, you are. Sure. Um, and, you know, talk about contributing to Nomad Futurist. I, I think there's this, there's, there's this kind of mindset or culture in the data center industry that everything's proprietary and secret and, right. you know. And, and I like what you said right before that, because it really is just moving electrons from A to B in a controlled manner, right? right. <laughs> I mean, it really is That's it. at the end of it. But, you know, data centers, as innovative and, no, this is proprietary and this is secret, it's 
it's power, it's cooling, it's redundancy, it's white space, right? Right. <laughs> you know, it's, right. Uh, no matter which color you paint your water pipes, you know, it's yeah. all the same thing, right? right. <laughs> it's, um, Says everybody not in the data center industry. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, teasing, just, uh, I'm teasing. You know, it's a... Uh, uh, Side note: If we have time, about you know data center innovation, right? Right. <laughs> but, um, but really, you know, QTS getting involved and in saying, "Hey, let, let's make a training program that's you know obviously not the proprietary kind of confidential things about your business, but the general concepts of digital infrastructure. Let's put it out there for everybody, and we want to make you know free, make it free, right? Mm-hmm. And we're targeting from kind of you know in high school up, right? Not just you know, people out of the military or people out of college, right? We're really going for that, that want to make something that's appealing to that, that younger generation. So contribute that content, even if it benefits, you know, the cell tower industry or telecom or, you know, because rising tides raise, uh, uh, rising tides raise all, raises all ships. Right. right. Uh, in that, you know, the more people we get in there, it's like, right. Oh, well, I didn't really understand what a data center was, but I knew what a cell tower was. Right. You know, well, they get in the, more people go into that, that industry and they're like, Oh, this connects back to a data center. Oh, right. this is cool. You know, so it all just kind of all connects together. Yeah, right. It um, does. We just want them to two things. One, tr- I don't know if you know, Travis, Wright. He's in our energy group. He leads our energy group. Years ago, when we really began focusing on um, energy sourcing, power buying, all these other things, one of the things that Travis, he got board approval, but then he went to the board and said, I want to share a lot of these ideas with our frenemies, Mm -hmm. with the hyperscales and the hyperscales with them, and then with our competitors, our worthy adversaries that we enjoy and help make our industry robust. And he does and he did regularly. Here's how we buy energy. Here's how we do these things. Here's if we want to make it more green and sustainable. Here's how we do it. Here's how we set up our ESG program. So I love that spirit. We win, and this is where the infomercial is going to stop in 30 seconds. I believe our organization wins because we do hard things better. It's not a lot of secret sauce. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows operational maturity. Um, and I, I really do believe that, um, I mean, one of the reasons why the United States military is the best on earth is because of their command and control. We're all human beings, but we have great command and control. We have great drilling. We practice. We've got great technology. But at the end of the day, it's command and control. Mm-hmm. Organizations that commit to command and control or operational maturity, and they drill and they practice and they put a practice around it, um, are going to succeed. So it's not how we paint our water pipes or bend our conduit or do these other things, although that's that's interesting lore to tell. <laughs> yeah. But it is those things. It is. Right. Yeah. I, I, just, I feel like there's an opportunity for us to evangelize people that aren't even considering. It's not that they're not choosing digital infrastructure because they think of it and they're like, that sounds lame. They don't even consider it as opposed to um, something else that's easy, that seems easy, that they've heard of or whatever. And so that's on us to do. And then internally, it's on us to proselytize to our organizations to say, look, we need to, back to your point about rising tide raises all boats, we need to share the 80% that is not proprietary, how we're doing this. Otherwise, we just keep poaching from each other. And that doesn't last very long. Well, it's a race to the bottom, right? right. Somebody got ten percent more to go to your competitor. Now you give them ten percent more to come back, right? Right. And it's just, and, and again, the business model breaks. It's about, you know, the the uh, nobody wins that way, right? Right. Um, but look, we have a whole segment of society that 
that we should be creating this opportunity. Somebody, somebody this year is going to get is going to get laid off, fired from a job at McDonald's because the self ordering machine is taking over. Right? Somebody's right. going to lose their job because of that. Right? Um, and I got to believe again, total total assumptions here. <laughs> uh, but I got to believe the break-even point on a self-ordering machine versus somebody staffing that's around fifteen to eighteen dollars an hour, right? right probably. <laughs> you, you notice those yeah. things went hand in hand, right? Right. Um, but so you got it. So somebody's going to lose their job because of that self-ordering machine. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to create an environment where that person can the next day pick up their phone and go make double the money, being the IT smart hands technician that goes in there and fixes that self-ordering machine when the when it when it breaks or it needs a firmware upgrade or the touchscreen stops working, we we have the tools. It exists. We're not inventing new technology here right. to make it happen. We're just to your point about that operational maturity, putting that into practice <clears throat> industry wide. Right? How do we have that? And it's your you know it, it really is it really is what makes a difference. Right? Is that process? And you know think back. You know when I think back in the Navy and, you know, you, your time in the Army, very few times I can think that I didn't know exactly what to do and when to do it and what I had up next and right. how to do something, And right? I mean, yeah. it was it just, it was there from the moment you wake up, the clarity of, here's what I'm wearing today, here's what I'm going to, you know, right. here's what I'm going to eat, here's what I've got to get done today, here's where I've, i got to be here at this time. You just had that clarity, right, yeah. at all times. Yeah. And, you know, does, do organizations have that in this industry? So I think that's how we widen that pooling and get more people in. But, um, you know, w- one thing you mentioned was, you know, the trouble sourcing talent from all different areas, um, you know, as everybody's, you know, scaling out. We need, <clears throat> we need to grab talent from all different regions, right, across right. the world. You, you know, one, one big, I think, a problem with this industry um, that was a real advantage early on, but as – times of change has become really, I think, a, a thorn in, in, in our side is how the, if you think about this industry, it's very interesting, you know, technical service delivery, there's not, it, it, it's a different place to sell into. It's a different place to work in, operate, go to the trade shows. It's a very different environment. And I think the big reason is, is there's not, it's not filled with professional management, Right. right? It's it, the managers and leaders in this industry are ex-practitioners, mm. right? Have you thought mm. about? I mean, yeah. everybody at one point was uh, uh, was you know in 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 the in the white space, right? I, right. I remember uh, my first time in uh, in a uh, Facebook data center. I was with James Facone, and he and I were walking around lifting up floor tiles, right? And so it's a, it's built in this leadership model of ex-practitioners which led to hiring and staffing decisions to be made based on a specialist model. Mm. And so we, we built everything on the specialist model of, well, that's my UPS specialist or my electrical specialist, and this is my mechanical specialist, or that is, you know, they only work on chiller plants, or if we need this done, that's this person, right? So now you've got a staff based on that specialist model. And, you know, COVID changed a lot of things. And I'm, I'm I'm one that's really tired of talking about it, but mm. <laughs> you know, I don't want to talk <laughs> right. about COVID. But but there was a kind of before and after moment in the workforce, right? Uh, and that is because look, all of a sudden that specialist model collapsed when you couldn't put somebody on a fifty dollars Southwest flight, right? Right when and then everybody's idea of where they wanted to work and how they wanted to work changed. It was a big cultural change, right? Right. Um, and and it's going to drive businesses to need to adapt to that. So you know, I think one way we can do this is to you know, we 
organizations, as we in an industry, we need to minimize our specialists. We need to minimize the number of specialists, and we need to start building generalists, right? right? People that are multi-talented. And if you think about, you know, well, when I, you know, in the Navy, when you get, when you, when you're on the ship, my job was a communications technician, but you ever see those, those warfare pins that, yeah. that you wear yeah. to get that you have to go through and you have to do all these qualifications and it can take a year, it can take a little less, a little right. more, right. But you say a year to get this, right. this qualification, uh, your surface warfare, submarine warfare, and a lot of that is going around and learning about every aspect of the ship, even if it doesn't relate to your job, mm. right? So these are the generators. This is the turbine engine. This is, you know, you spend all the, you spend your spare time going around shadowing and following and people in all these other different trades have to sign off on your call card. Then they put you in a room in front of a bunch of people and ask you questions. They put you in front of the, you know, in, in front of the chiefs that have been doing this for 15, 16, 17 years. And they put and they just drill you with questions and you don't know what they're going to ask you, but they're going to make sure you know everything about what's going on. Even if it's not related to my communications equipment, right. they would drill that. And that is really creating, you know, on a lesser extent, but you know, that same idea of that mindset and cross training and creating, having a generalist approach, right? Um, if it's one in the morning and you've got an alarm on a UPS, there's no reason you're you know, your HVAC technician shouldn't be able to go acknowledge that alarm and at least do level one, level two. Do I just need to clear it? Is it gone? You know, why bring in an electrical you know, specialist right. for that, you know, for that type of situation, right. right? When it's not always needed. So I think that's another way we can scale in this is saying, okay, we're, we've got a hiring plan. I need all these specialists to staff my next facility. Well, again, getting new people into the industry, maybe the target isn't we create you know, we need to hire all these specialists. Maybe the target is we hire these generalists and the specialists are sitting in central locations and their job becomes providing clarity right. to, the, to the generalists out in the field, right. the backup support, right? So kind of running that type of model, I think is a big transition. And I can see you as an operator already getting nervous about that. I'm actually kind of <laughs> quivering because um, when I got in the data center industry, we had... DCO technicians. I had telecom technicians. So DCO are the rack and stack and cable them up. Mm -hmm. And I had electricians and I had mechanical electricians bring the power. Mechanical brings the cooling or the air or the plumbing. And I, so a number of groups involved to make the Death Star operate. Uh, I, I'm going to say a date, but I, this is probably wrong. But at least a year and a half, if not two years ago, but certainly solid, solidly a year and a half ago, James, Ryan Hunter, James Repass, Ryan Hunter, and others in our organization said that model is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. I have too little over here and I don't have enough over here and whatever. I need a generalist. And so we switched to what's called the COT model, which in our world, because even I, somebody who's been around this, our data centers here, I'm one of the original people at QTS, and so this is my 19th year here, but I've been around this business for almost 30 years. I get anxious when I, if you think about it in terms of IT, I need somebody who's good enough in storage, good enough compute, good enough in networking, mm -hmm. right? Not just my specialists at the higher engineering level. And so we've been on this path and it has been, um, it's embraced now. In fact, they're excited about it now as we've been converting people over because you may be really strong in this area, 
but boy, are you weak over here in the rack and stack area or vice versa or whatever. And what does a managed cable system look like? How, how do I acknowledge the light on an air handler or RPP or PDU? Like all, whatever, however it is that you're approaching it. And we're working, um, we're working hard to uh, convert that organization to this, what we call a COT model, this generalist model with some specialists geographically or in a metropolitan area. So we're speaking in Atlanta. I've got millions of square feet of campus down there. I have hundreds of thousands of square feet of campus right above us. And most of our areas, Northern Virginia, Texas, others have these big, massive campuses, and we want to follow that same model. But I still have to convince my internal organization that this is this model makes sense, and then I have to convince people that aren't part of my organization that are coming in that this model makes sense because it's not the norm. It's not how we've done it really since data center co-location became a thing in the late '90s, early 2000s. And so it is. Um, we're on that path, but we're early adapters, adopters. I don't know. Are we? Is it A or no? Whatever. It's, it's adopters. We didn't go to college. Where the hell do we know? We Adap- don't care. Adapters are for <laughs> for the car. physical connections. Uh, yeah. yeah, early adopters. So, um, but it is. You know, it's great to hear you say that, but it is still lumpy, even though we believe in that idea um, overall as we work it's, through it. It's again the 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 leadership will come around, I think, because they're going to have to, right? They're right. not going to have a choice. But you know, so so everybody you know just needs to get in front of that that mindset now and change. Um, I'm going to use this as a perfect opportunity to give my data center innovation. Please, quote, right? Please. You know, like we talked about yeah. data center innovation is, you know, data centers talk about being innovative and everybody you know, gets together and congratulates each other on their, on their innovation. And just the fact of the matter is data centers are not innovative. Wow. Yeah. And we, we invited you in today. Okay. I know. No, you know, well, the, the problem, <laughs> look, look at your story. You're trying to innovate on your staffing model right. and you're getting resistance, right? Right. If you weren't a data center, right. you could make that change very quickly, right? Yeah. And the reason data centers can't be innovative is because they have to be risk adverse. Mm. And innovation and risk adver- being risk adverse they're polar opposites. Right. They're at opposite ends of the spectrum. And to be innovative, you have to accept a certain level of risk. Right. And that's, I think, your 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 leadership's challenge on the staffing is we want to change the way and the model and, and how we staff and what kind of people we want to staff. Right. We want to be innovative in our staffing model. Yeah. And their big concern is, well, that could present risk. Right. Right? Well, so it's hard to those two are those two are. Here's opposites. where I'm gonna challenge you just a little bit. Okay. You're right yep. with this. This would be the exception, or not the exception, but the model on how you mitigate risk. So when we say risk, and we're talking about our industry, what we mean is SLA. Mm-hmm. So we have, an, we, have a, we have some sort of contractual agreement with a customer. <clears throat> People come to data centers, not for our bodies or pretty faces, but because we promise them that we'll keep their environment up. It will remain on. That's our promise. Mm-hmm. And... And so we, we wrap that around some sort of an agreement. It could be an SLA. It could be, um, you know, different, yeah. different types of contractual terms, but it, that's what we mean. Years ago, data centers had to be 2N, which means I have two yeah. of everything, right? In, then we became N plus one. So that would be like if I'm going across the desert in a Range Rover, I got to have four tires, if I'm just driving around metropolitan Atlanta, I need one spare tire. I don't mm-hmm. need four. I just need one to replace. That's my plus one. Yep. We convinced the world to follow that model 
because of the economics involved. If you'll allow me to change this SLA to something that looks like this instead of that, I'll have, and here's my statistical analysis that says how many times in history, just in the industry, not just us, have you had multiple failures of a system? Almost never, statistically right. zero, but you're paying for it as if it's engines fall off of planes all the time. So same thing, how we adapted different ASHRAE models, same thing, how we've uh, adapted different things is that we've turned it into an economic, you know, our, our, so here's where our ace in the hole I feel like is when the big hyperscales, the Googles, the Microsofts, whatever, come to us and say, I need you to deliver me a level of service at an economic model that looks like this, because they're under pressure as well. I could do that if you let me change the SLA. So if I go to generalists that don't have to instantly solve that, if I go to a redundancy that looks like this, the resistance is, I think, just in human beings, even in the military, hey, we want to change how we teach. Hey, we want to change how we recruit. Hey, we want to change how we target there is some natural resistance. The military, I think, is really interesting, and they're pre pretty early adopters in a lot of areas, uh, so they can compete, a com uh, maintain a competitive edge um, in defending ourselves. But anyway, in our world of brick and mortar and risk adverse, you're 100% right. But what we've learned over the last decade is with the world's biggest buyers, if we turn it into an economic model and, and can distill different levels of risk and wrap it into an SLA, they'll let us. Does it work every time? No. So, so earlier you asked, earlier you asked, you said, how do we, how do we convince the leadership to change, to change their, their yeah. mind on operations, right? And yeah. enforce clarity and to change the way things are done. Yeah. And I said, they they'll have to be there because the 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 financial model the business model is going to break right. right exactly what you said yeah. right is you guys were able to change those SLAs and innovate in that aspect of your business because the business model was changing right, right. and it's going to be the same way in this industry and the winners are going to be the people that get ahead of this right, right. they're going to be the ones that are you know um, they're going to be the ones that are that are that are going to be uh, be able to scale, right? The ones that start putting in that investment now into saying, what is operational clarity? What do we need to do in this organization? You know, think back, well, pretend, pretend it is the, uh, pretend it is the year, you know, 2005, right? Mm, good year. It's, good year. Mm -hmm. It's 2005. Um, it's 2005. You need a job. Could you go to Boston and would would you be comfortable being a cab driver in Boston? Now, did you choose 2005 because the Red Sox had just won the World Series I, I in didn't, 2004? I, it must have. And we all watched Drew Barrymore and everybody celebrated on TV. Um, all right, so I'm going to Boston. I'm going to be a cab driver in Boston. In 2005. I presume yes. No. I mean, you'd have to go through some kind of a rigorous yeah, onboarding. It's, it's 2005. Right. You, you probably didn't have a GPS right. in your car in 2005. Right. It doesn't no. seem like that long ago. Right. You probably didn't have a GPS. Yeah. No. Uh, if you did, it was the, one of those aftermarket ones in the yeah. window, right? Yeah. That you have to put in your glove box every yeah. time. Yeah. You know, so you'd be Thomas Brothers Guide. <laughs> right. And, and so uh, pre-iPhone, right? Right. Um, what, you had a, a Motorola Razor maybe? Right. You know, some other flip phone. Yeah. Not giving you maps, yeah. right? How are you going to get the calls? So... You're 2005, not that long ago. 
I guess it is a long time ago now, but you know, it doesn't feel like that right. long ago. You had a radio in your car, right? right? Somebody dispatcher would radio you in to go to this address, pick somebody up. Could you be a cab driver in 05, right? Right. No. No, be very difficult. Very difficult. Could you go tomorrow and be a cab driver? In yes. Miami? What's the difference? Technology. Right. Clarity, right? right. The technology is providing that clarity. So the same thing in the same thing in this industry and that opportunity, right? Mm. And, you know, I think businesses and, and what we're saying is, do you want to be do you want to be the person that held out and fought and said, I'm, I'm not giving up my cab company? Right. <laughs> or do you want to be the one that says, I'm going to, I'm going to run an Uber franchise or a Lyft. I keep using right. Uber as a, right. any of this. That's right kind share. of the, 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 the birth of the gig economy, yeah. right? Other, a lot of other companies do it very right. well on the gig economy side, right? Yeah. Lyft is good. And we've got what I love DoorDash. about Uber yeah. is um, just as a little side note, it's not just, they, they're not just a great ride share. Mm-hmm. They do th- four, six, eight other businesses. I mean, they're they do rickshaws in parts of the world. Like it's it's how do I leverage my apps and my technology, this clarity that you describe, and what services could I impact where we can come in into this mobile world and change the world? Deliver food, yes. Mm-hmm. Deliver beverages, yes. Pick up people, yes. Deliver them, deliver pack. Like how do we do it? Elegant simple yep. with clarity they're constantly innovating and they they're are, remarkable yeah and it's and it's really you know are they innovating or are they just going after different you know it, like i said is you know give me an example of somebody that ran a great uh that the, the the definition of operational clarity i'd say the uber app right they just happen to pick taxi cabs right, right? but they're that operational clarity, see, it, it transcends all these other, you're saying rickshaws, right. and food delivery. And, right. you know, it's really, it's that clarity to provide, to provide a service. And when you look at, you know, what are the components of clarity, right? We, you know, we were talking about that. What are the components of clarity? It's really four things. It's when, when something needs to be done, who's going to go do it, right? Where are they going to do it? And then what are they going to do? Those are those four components, Right. That need to be aligned and think about, you know, and, and if you think about gig economy services that have kind of come and gone, they're missing one of those four, right? So, you know, I think a first one is like home repair or handyman services, right? Those have tried to come and go a lot. Have right. you noticed that? It's like, yeah. oh, just it's like the Uber of home handyman services. Right. Well, the big thing there, you know, it's easy to say when, it's easy to say who, it's easy to say where. The, the big thing that's always missing on the home handyman services is the what is ambiguous. Mm. And so that gig economy falls apart because the person gets there to do the work and either the homeowner feels ripped off or the handyman feels ripped off because you didn't have alignment of what. Right. Nobody had clarity on what. Who scopes right. that before the person shows up, right? right? So when you look at those four pieces of operational clarity that Uber's providing, you know exactly when the driver's going to be there. You know exactly where they're going to pick you up and where you're going, right? How mm-hmm. to do, how to do this job? You know exactly who's doing it, and that who is based on qualifications mm-hmm. and certifications. Mm-hmm. Do you have an SUV? Do you have a regular car? Do you have a van? Do you, right. You know, that, right? right? Those things. Um, and then the the what is? And this is the uh, the the only part of the infomercial. Uh, uh, <laughs> but the what is uh, the what is a digital checklist. That you know is turn by turn navigation, right? Right, same thing. Do right. this, then do that, then right. do this, then do and that. And I have a pretty good estimation of my financial obligation, correct? 
before mm-hmm. we even start, right? Mm-hmm. Here's where I'm at. Here's where I want to go. These are the services that I'm picking and choosing to participate. Yep. What is it that you're you're suggesting to me at this moment live? Because it might be a little more or a little bit less depending upon time of day or right. whatever. Well, this is what it is. And you choose, choose to participate or not. And then when I'm done, I have uh, an instant mechanism to offer feedback, either celebration of job well done or criticism for improvement. And what's what's interesting what's interesting about that is is you have an idea of the financial the financial uh, kind of terms and conditions right before you engage in the in before you engage in the service right and you you have that estimation you have that alignment so two things on that one is you're looking at it from the writer's perspective and and you're absolutely right you know exactly what it's going to cost there's no surprises there's no gotchas right, right? and Imagine providing that financial per, that financial projection without with one of those four pieces missing. Can do it. Can't do it. It's right. impossible, right? Right. Now couldn't accurately do it. Couldn't a, right. It'd be right. there. There'd You're be guessing. problems, right? right? So now look back and and as we talk about the industry and how we get people into this industry and how we staff people and and everything, right? You from the writer have an idea of that financial projection, that financial commitment. Think about it from the driver's perspective, right? Mm-hmm. A driver doesn't have to pick you up. Right. They don't have to do this, yeah. right? They, they could go do something else. They could go do DoorDash. Sometimes they, they leverage that when they pull up and they see me. Oh, I'm not picking him up. They yeah. just keep going. <laughs> I know it's you. I see your license plate. Nope, canceled. I don't know. <laughs> no, but they don't have to do this. Now, yeah. you would say, how do we get people into this industry? How do we staff more? How do we, how do we widen the hiring pool? Well, again, that clarity is benefiting both sides of that transaction. Right. It's benefiting the driver as much as it's benefiting sure. you because they know exactly what's expected. They have a they have a financial projection of if I deliver this and do exactly what I'm told what I'm agreeing to do here, right. I will benefit in this way from it. Right. Right. Do we have that clarity to job candidates and to people in the industry? Right. No. Right. And and so it's so again, it's it's at both sides of that transaction, which I think is again that's why I use them as a as a as a as an example so much because I don't look at them as a rideshare service. I don't look at them as a food delivery service. I look at them as a company that went out and whether they knew it or not, perfected operational clarity right. using technology to the tune of again being able to onboard five hundred thousand drivers a year. Wow, that's that's crazy. Yeah. It is when you put in that perspective. It, it is absolutely blows my mind, and um, you know they've withstood a lot of. I, I feel like we're the infomercial for Uber. Right? It re- we really aren't, but it just. <laughs> but I just admire entrepreneurial um, moxie and the ability. They, they've been with you know they've had their sins uh, that have been publicized uh, yeah. in. Uh, operational ma- or in management and leadership and whatever, and they continue to evolve and work through those. Um, I know people over there. I'm sure you know people over there. But it is the model that you're describing is remarkable, and um, I cannot wait to see how it's applied, not just to our industry, but just the world in in general. We have talked for a long time. We've talked about a lot of stuff. What haven't we talked about that we should have? Oh, I I don't know. I think we we have talked for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And I think we're uh, I think we covered everything. Let me. Uh, let me 
me through. Okay, you're running through the checklist. Yeah, okay. running through the checklist in my in my head right now. Yeah, you even worked in a Red Sox reference subconsciously. I like that. Just <laughs> flashing back to uh, uh, the miracle, uh, John. If we um, as we wrap up, how do you want to? How do you, what do you want the audience to be thinking about as we wrap it up today? You know, I I, I really think it's it's. You know, everybody's got to look, and and I think everybody sees the risk. Um, everybody's talking about it. You know, we need we have a staffing problem, we have a hiring problem. Look in, in our in our society and culture, we have a we have a an income problem, right? Yeah. There's a there's a there's a large group of people that are really struggling to get by, and that problem's only going to get worse. Look, we have we have opportunity, we have willing people, right, and what can we do as a private sector to put the pieces in place so you can take that willing, that group of willing people and make them able, right? Mm -hmm. What is that bridge from willing to able? And look, leveraging technology, leveraging training programs, leveraging this, that gap isn't very big. Right. It's really not as big as everybody thinks, right? right. Um, and we go to a generalist model. So, you know, I think what everybody th should be thinking about is how do we, how, how do we bridge that gap? How do we take that that segment of society that is really eager for opportunity and 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 again and, and let's let's put the pieces in place and start start getting them in the workforce, getting them in the industry, right? And and we solve the problem pretty quickly. Yeah, it's not it's not a ten year problem to solve, right? Yeah. it can be done very very quickly. Well, if they want to learn more about you, we've talked about a number of things today. Nomad futurists. Um, we talked about um, you. If they want to learn more about you or Nomad, how do they get in touch with you guys? Oh, you can go to uh, nomadfuturist.org. Uh, uh, um, you know, I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. A pretty heavy user. Of I think that's how we've been communicating yeah, mostly times, is on yeah. LinkedIn. Um, or or check out uh, checkhub.com. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. John, thanks for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks. Hey, if you've enjoyed the conversation, please like. And if you loved it, subscribe. We'll see you next time, everybody. QTS Experience. Take care.